Welcome to the Hope Chapel Sermon Podcast. We hope that you are encouraged by this teaching from God's Word. We currently are meeting again for in-person services and would love to have you join us if you feel comfortable. Our in-person service times are Saturday at 5 p.m. and Sunday at 9 or 11 a.m. You can also tune into our live stream on Sundays at 9 and 11 by going to hopechapel.org forward slash live. All right, well, if you would open your Bibles to John 13, we're going to read the first 17 uh, verses together. If you don't have a Bible, you can follow along on the screens to my right and to my left. Beginning in verse 1. Oh, I'm sorry. Would you please stand for the reading of Scripture? Thank you. I just heard a, a voice over here. Correct me. It was good. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from the supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter who said, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now? But afterward, you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not every one of you, for he knew who was to betray him, that was why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Amen? Please be seated. How many of you remember... Learning to drive. I remember I just didn't take it very seriously. Like, it didn't seem like a very dangerous task, if I'm being honest. Everyone did it. I wasn't super careful. I didn't understand why everyone was so intense about driving. And then, um, you know, my oldest kid is 10, so we're still a few years back, but I find myself, like, already kind of anxious. I, like, take a 2,000-pound medical machine, a metal, metal machine, and I'm like, yeah, you just take control of this. Go for it. 50 miles an hour. You know, like, we drive in these enormous metal machines 
that go 45, 55, 65 miles an hour down the road. Now, there's like a divider a lot of times, but sometimes there's not. There's just a painted line, like the suggestion of a divider. Like, I think through how nervous I would be to train my kids to drive, just I would want to be super careful. I would want to be super detailed. I would want to cover all the bases because the thing that they're going to do is dangerous. It's risky. It requires care and attention. I really want them to be ready. What's happening now in this section of John is Jesus is transitioning from his very public to a much more private portion of his ministry. For the last 12 chapters, Jesus has, for the most part, done everything he's done in the public eye. He's taught thousands. He's performed miracles in front of thousands. He said really, really scandalous things. He's turned water into wine, and he's walked on water, and he's fed 5,000, and he's raised Lazarus from the dead. And to a certain degree, his fame has increased over the course of his ministry. And he, he ends his public ministry with these words in 1244. And Jesus cried out and said, whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to what? Save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that this commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. And that's it. Those are Jesus' final public words in the Gospel of John. And we go into an extended period between that moment and the moment of his arrest, and the narrative resumes. For, for a number of chapters, Jesus instructs and teaches his disciples. The people who have been closest with him for many, many years now, who have been his companions. And particularly what happens in the Gospel of John is Jesus will perform a miracle. For example, he'll feed 5,000 people. And then John will spend a section in which Jesus kind of expands on that miracle. In the example of feeding 5,000, it's how Jesus is the bread of life. There's a sign and some explanation. In this case, Jesus explains the upcoming miracle to his disciples ahead of time. He'll be crucified and he'll be raised on the third day. And he endeavors to have them understand what that means before it happens. He is preparing for them to be without him. He's been with them present the whole time. And now he's preparing them to continue on in their mission in the ministry on their own. And we read that he is doing this for his own. It said that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. And it says, having loved his own. Who were Jesus' own? <laughs> I think, is it us? <laughs> Let me show you some of his own. He came to his own. And his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Here's another one. 
all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Oh, Chapel, if you have called on the name of Jesus, if you have turned from your sin and repentance and toward Jesus in faith, if you've trusted in Jesus as your Savior and you've submitted to Jesus as your Lord, then you are one of Jesus' own. And all the things he says here about his people are applied to you, that he will give you eternal life, that you will know his voice and he knows you, that no one will snatch you out of his hands and that at the end you will be raised back to life. Wonderful promises for God's people. Do you rest in those promises? Jesus is speaking to his own here, and that's important because as we hear what he has to say to the disciples, as he's approaching his crucifixion, we can learn about what it means to continue in Christian mission after Jesus is no longer bodily with us. We know in a certain sense Jesus is still with us, right? He says in the Great Commission that I will be with you even to the very end of the age. But in body, right now, he's not. This is also meant for unbelievers. For those who are believers who call in the name of Jesus, this is a reminder, it's an encouragement, it's instruction. For those who have not yet called in the name of Jesus, those of you here today who are brought by a friend or are casually interested or needed something fun to do on a Sunday morning, it's an invitation. And so Jesus begins this instruction section, this teaching section, with an object lesson. He actually does not at first speak. He acts. It is a sort of enacted or lived out parable. And in it, we can be recognizing Jesus. We can be receiving Jesus. And over time, we can be resembling Jesus. You're wondering why you have three blank spots in your notes. Those are the three blank spots. I'll come back to them, though. So first, recognizing Jesus. Read again the first five verses with me. Now before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. This is a simple and effective way that Jesus gives us a little picture of what he would be achieving in his overall mission and the nature and the means by which he would achieve it. We read that Jesus acted in love. It says, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. That means to the greatest amount. It means to the end of his ministry. He fully exhausts his ability to love. Love is kind of a vague word today. Is that right? I love 7-Eleven. I also love my wife. I do not mean the same thing in both those cases. 
That's good. I promise I don't. When you say you love your children or you love a hamburger or you love an activity or a place or a location or whatever, you mean different things when you use this same word. I told my wife I loved her 15 years ago, and I tell her now, and the freight that comes along with it now is different. I'm sure many of you who've been married for many, many, many years understand what I'm talking about. We have one word that is applied in a million different ways. It means so much that I think in many cases it has come to mean very little because it's a word with a billion different applications. So when we think about how Jesus loves us, how God loves people, we need to understand that even in the Bible, that word can mean different things. For example, God loves everyone in the world with a sense of charity. We call this like benevolence. Have you ever heard that word before? God in general loves everybody. I'll I'll, I'll show you because some people are like, that's not true. And I'm like, it's true. The Bible teaches it. Matthew 5, 43, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you have loved those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. The strong implication of this passage is there is a sense in which God loves all human beings. However, there is a particular redeeming love that God has for his own people. Those whom he has rescued out of the rebellious world. Those who have, as I've said, called on the name of Jesus, turned in repentance, trusted in Jesus' sacrifice, and submitted to him as Lord. Let me show you an example of that type of love. Romans 8.35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written... For your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. A powerful passage that communicates to us that God does what he says he's going to do, that God doesn't lose those who are his own, that God loves his own and he will not cease loving his own, and there's nothing that anyone or anything could do to sever that bond of love. I also want us to see that the way that the Bible talks about love primarily is not like a general affection or feeling that God has. It's action that God has taken on our behalf. The way that God loves us is through the cross of Christ. I think it's important for us to associate love with action and not with feelings because God is able to do all things. He has a sort of omnipotent love, an all-powerful love that you can trust. So Jesus, he acts in love and he also is unafraid of opposition. You guys ever afraid of someone that you don't like? Some of you guys know exactly what I mean. (laughs) Afraid of enemies? Anybody? 
You're like, I don't think I have any enemies. You probably do, you just don't know. <laughs> Judas is there in the room, is that right? And John tells us a bunch of times here, the guy who's going to betray him is in the room. And, and the text doesn't explicitly say this, but I think it's very likely that Jesus also washed Judas's feet. The very man that would betray him, that would be part of the machine that took Jesus from the safety of his disciples outside the city of Jerusalem by trials, arrests. Uh, he sees Herod, he sees Caiaphas, he sees Pilate. He's dragged out of the city, he's persecuted, and he's actually crucified. Like, Judas is part of that system. He's identified over and over again through the Gospel of John. This is the guy who's going to betray the Lord, yet Jesus still washes his feet. He does not seem turned aside by Judas. He does not seem concerned about Judas. There's another enemy there, though. Did you catch that? It's not just Judas. The devil. The devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. I'm sorry to talk about Satan two weeks in a row. You're like, this is my first two weeks, and this guy mentioned the devil both weeks. It's not my fault. Here, look, see? It's right there. I'm not making it up. So let's talk about the devil for a little bit. There's a satanic pattern that we see throughout the entire Bible. It begins right at the beginning in Genesis 3. The serpent tempts Eve. He lies to Eve. He tells Eve that she can be like whom? Like God. And the pattern, the satanic pattern we see in the Bible over and over again is people who desire to exalt themselves up to the position of God. A famous passage in Isaiah that's a reference to the king of Babylon, but is itself a symbol and satanic pattern, is in Isaiah 14, we read, How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn, how you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. Look at it. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high, but you are brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. The satanic pattern in the Bible is the pattern of self-exaltation. Desiring to put ourselves in the place of God. Pride and arrogance, Paul says, like puffed up. Do you ever recognize pride or arrogance in your own heart? Just me. I'll raise my hand first. Yes, I do. Paul says this when he's working through the qualifications of a pastor or an elder. He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. I want us to see that if the satanic pattern is self-exaltation, then the divine pattern of Christ is servanthood. Radical and humble servanthood. Exercised by Jesus Christ, who does not need to be humble, because there is nothing wrong with him. If Jesus humbles himself, then the pattern for us is servanthood. Jesus is going to take on a gross job here. He's going to wash the disciples' feet. I know you think that you're like, but like, little shower head, run. We got shoes on and socks. Uh, this was not a good job. I don't even want to compare it to a bad job because I'm afraid to pick some really bad job and say, it's like this job today. And then I'll get an email this week and be like, you made fun of my job that I make a living. I provide for my family with that job. 
So imagine for yourself, whatever the worst job is you can think of, like the grossest job, you would bathe and you would leave your house and you'd be wearing sandals and there's lots of animals around. You'd walk down dusty paths that animals have also walked down. You'd arrive at someone's house and they'd be like, before you come in, I need to wash all of this garbage off your feet. But it was a, it was a task that like, if you were like the household lead, you wouldn't do that. If you were a member of the family, you wouldn't do that. If you were a Jewish slave, you wouldn't do that. If you were a Gentile in a Jewish home, you might have to, to do that job. It was for the lowest person on the totem pole. It's the person who had the least power in a situation. That was the person who was going to be the foot washer. So Jesus picks a profoundly humble position before his disciples. And just as a reminder, he is the Logos, the Word, who was in the beginning with God, who was God. Through him, everything was created. Colossians tells us everything is held together in him. The very divine creator God of the universe. We can see him in Jesus, and that same person takes his outer garment off, stoops down, and washes garbage off of his own disciples' feet. You actually could not humble yourself more than that. It would be impossible for you to do. Philippians 2, like probably my favorite passage, says, have this mind amongst yourself in Christ Jesus. It's yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the very form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be presumed on. But he emptied himself. That is the divine pattern, the divine pattern of humility. And one of the reasons why he could not be turned aside from his mission all the way to the cross, a humble mission that resulted in a humiliating, shameful death for the creator of the universe was because he meant to go there. It was a humble path he intended to walk. That's the ironic part about all the machinations against Jesus, Pilate and Caiaphas and Herod and Judas, like, we're going to get him. But he's, he's trying to get there. He's going there on purpose because his path is a humble path. We can also see that Jesus trusts the Father. He trusts the Father. In verse 3, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. Jesus, in his earthly ministry, trusted the Father. Do you trust God? People are like, oof. All the time? Sometimes? Most of the time, you guys started out really responsive. <laughs> Wake up a little bit, okay? Do you trust God? Maybe often. I confess I do not always trust God. Anyone here ever have a lapse in trust? What trust does for Jesus is it preserves his righteousness. Jesus walked a perfectly righteous path all the way to the cross, and it produces endurance. He could suffer all manner of mockery and torture and execution because he trusted that the Father knew what he was doing. Have you ever tried to take a splinter out of like a five-year-old's foot? Yeah, so we're like, yeah. You're like, call the team, right? They're like going crazy. They suddenly have the power of like a grown man. And they're screaming, and you're like, if you just stop moving, if you just listened to me and sat still, I could get this out of your foot, and it would be over. And they're like, no, I'm going to scream, 
I'm going to writhe. I'm going to try and kick you. I'm going to make it so much worse than it needs to be. They would just trust you, right? I know that there are many times in our life where trusting God seems like a profoundly difficult task because your circumstances are not good. Your future does not seem good. Your tool set to do what you need to do does not seem good. But God does not make mistakes. And even now, those of you who are suffering and struggling can trust him. It will produce in you righteousness, and it will produce in you endurance. Amen? Also, next, receiving Jesus. Let's read verses 6 through 11 together. Just waiting for everyone to turn the page there. We read in verse 6, He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? (laughs) Jesus answered him, what I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. (laughs) Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not only my feet, (laughs) but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you, for he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. We have a shocked Peter. You remember that Jesus' position here in washing the disciples' feet was a humble position. Peter sees the Lord of the universe. He sees Jesus Christ, his teacher for at least three years, stand up and disrobe and get ready to do this gross job and Peter's like absolutely not you will not do that and Jesus says yeah I'm gonna do it you don't understand right now why I'm doing this but later you'll understand right now you don't understand but you will understand later do you realize that those are actually pretty comforting verses for us is there anything that you don't understand there's someone out there that's like no everything I understand all the things How many times in your life are you in a situation that seems unresolvable or particularly difficult or complex and you're like, why is this thing happening? Peter sees what Jesus is doing. It seems absurd to him. He's like, no, no, hold on. And Jesus says, right now you don't get it. Later, you will get it. And Peter says, you will absolutely not wash my feet. You will never wash my feet. The language in the Greek is this double, super intense double negative. Peter's like, there is no world in which you, Jesus, wash my feet. I think the problem is that Peter wants to serve Christ before Christ serves him. And that is not the way that Christianity works. Peter wants to serve Jesus before Jesus serves him. He wants to help Jesus before Jesus helps him. That's not the message of Christianity. It's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that we are unable to do anything to help God. They were actually born as enemies of God. That the world, especially as it's described in the Gospel of John, are opposed to God. That human beings are sin and wicked and unable to live righteous lives. They hurt each other and they offend God. And that's true about each of us the moment we're born. 
But God in his kindness takes on human form and he dies a death in our place after living a perfectly righteous life. Jesus, perfectly righteous, carried no sin with him to the cross whatsoever. So at the cross, he becomes sin for us. And the wrath of God that's meant to be poured out on sinners, us, is poured out on Jesus. And so then all who call in the name of Jesus, all who turn in faith and repentance to Jesus, all those who trust in his sacrifice, they can be declared righteous and carry with them Jesus' righteousness. And in the end, be saved. But Peter first thinks, actually, what i got to do is help Jesus. I've heard people say, I need to decide what I'm going to do for Jesus in this world. A better use of our time would be to consider deeply what it is that Jesus has already done for us. Peter's not ready to receive the right Jesus. He's not ready to receive the crucified and risen Jesus. You might remember that Peter was probably thinking Jesus was ready to deal with the Romans. He was going to throw off their oppression. He was going to deal with their material and governmental issues. In his mind, probably that's what he thought a Messiah would do. He's very happy to wash the feet of that Messiah. It is, it is essential for us to receive the correct Jesus. And what I don't mean is that you have to perfectly understand Jesus. That's not what I mean. You will grow in knowledge of Jesus. What I mean is, if you want a Jesus that's not crucified in your place, then you're not receiving the right Jesus. You're receiving an imposter Jesus. It's a Jesus of moral reformation or good teaching or good wisdom or like a new agey Jesus or a Jesus who's your buddy. None of those will suffice. You must receive the Jesus who was crucified in your place, your means of rescue. When I talk with people about their Christian life, sometimes I'll hear them say things like, and if you've said this to me, relax, but I'm just going to use an example because I've done it as well. I say things, or other people say things like, I just need to make Jesus the center of my life. And I think there's some truth there. Or I just need to reprioritize my life such that Jesus is at the top. I'd apply like a, an illustration here. If you're drowning in a storm and someone throws you a life preserver, you don't think, I just need to make this life preserver the center of my life. I need to reprioritize this life preserver higher up on the list. No, uh, Hope Java, you must cling to the life preserver such that you are rescued from your sure demise. That's receiving the crucified Jesus. He tells Peter, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part with me. And Peter, in very typical Peter fashion, does a, like a full 180. He goes from absolutely never, you will never ever do this, to actually wash my whole body. <laughs> I think there's two important affirmations here from this section uh, where Peter has a dialogue with Jesus. One is that you are only saved the one time. Did you know that? You were only saved the one time. I'll do baptism interviews and I'll ask someone, when did you get saved? And they'll say, yeah, like three or four times. Okay. Or like when I was a kid, you know, my mom led me in a prayer. And a few years back, I was at a church and I went forward at an altar call. Another time, I met an evangelist on the beach and I read a track with him and he prayed with me. So I'm pretty covered, three or four times. 
Eleanor, you were saved when you recognized your own sinfulness before a holy God and you realized you needed a Savior and you trusted in Jesus' sacrifice as your means of salvation. That's when you were rescued. One of the, um, one of the difficulties sometimes with uh, what can be a shallow form of evangelism is just trying to lead someone to a prayer. And then people get the idea that they can just be saved over and over again. There people get like addicted to salvation. They're like, yeah, every time I just, I pray the prayer, the sinner's prayer every time and just, you know, covering all my bases. But no, no, you're saved only the one time. God doesn't uh, like fail to keep you. You can't unsave yourself. What God starts, he will finish. There is no world in which you can unsave that which God has saved. He's, he's mighty to save. He's able to do it. And if he grants you a new heart, he will grant you a new life, and he's not going to lose you. John says it over and over and over again. Jesus says, I keep the ones the Father gives me. He says, I know their voice. He says, none will be snatched away from me. Remember when he told Peter, you don't understand now, but later you'll understand? Do you remember that? Uh, He does. Look, Peter writes a letter that's in our New Testament. He says, you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, Not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. It's a far cry from you will never wash my feet. Here's another one. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Look at this. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were strained like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Peter's like, don't wash my feet, Jesus. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Christ's sacrificial death is sufficient to grant you rescue and salvation. And salvation only happens the one time. However, when Peter says, actually, Jesus, I want you to just completely wash me, Jesus says, no, no, you're washed. When you bathe, you don't need to bathe again. Just sometimes you wash feet. Most people who write about this passage agree that Jesus is referring here just to the daily pattern of confession and repentance commanded in the Bible. Not confession and repentance for salvation, but because you are already saved. A desire to live out righteousness, as we just read in the passage from 1 Peter. You may know this famous passage from 1 John. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And here we go. Remember that John is speaking to Christians. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar. And his word is not in us. The work of Jesus at the cross, it frees us from the penalty of sin at the very end. It it frees us to a certain degree from the power of sin in our lives. It does not, however, free us from the presence of sin. Anybody here yet made it to a sinless state? There was a uh, preacher that believed this, and they were interviewing him, and they said, he was saying, yeah, I haven't sinned in seven years. And his wife is behind him going like, 
We, we become uh, more righteous over time. We become more of what we are declared through many different means. One of these is through the washing of the word. Uh, let me show you Psalm 119.9. How can a young man keep his ways pure? By guarding it according to your word. Or, or this famous passage for husbands and wives. Paul says to husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. As we read God's word, we understand better and better what it means to obey God. Do you want to be obedient to God? Doug does. Thanks, Doug. It's like when I was a kid, I would clean my room, and if adult me saw what kid me thought was a clean room, he'd be embarrassed. As I've gotten older, I've become increasingly interested in having things organized. Messes that I didn't see seven years ago, I see now. You understand the illustration I'm making here? Over time, we become more sensitive to the sin in our lives. I remember uh, I was with a young man who had come to faith, um, and he understood he can't fornicate anymore, right? He's like, but everything else is fine. And I was like, uh, hold on, man. <laughs> and we go to the Word, and we read it together, and he slowly becomes more sensitive to sin and realizes that the Christian life is a repeated pattern of confession and repentance, and because of confession and repentance, growth. Lastly, I want to talk about resembling Jesus. Verses 12 through 17. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garment and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Jesus' object lesson is also a call to action, a call to action of following Jesus and imitating Jesus. Jesus says, I have given you an example that you should also do just as I have done to you. Jesus is himself the master. He is himself the one who sins. And he says, listen, the one who is sent and the servant of the master is not greater than the master. So live in the way that I have lived. And the first, I think, very obvious example of this is that we are called, in imitation of Jesus, to live in humble service. Do you guys like to be humble servants? I am the humblest of servants, right? You're like, I'm a very humble servant. I'm the most humble servant there is. I don't think that's our natural inclination. I, I think that we are more inclined, naturally, to, to exalt ourselves, to think highly of ourselves, or at least have a desire for others to think highly of us. Maybe we don't have a very high opinion of ourselves, but we really hope other people do. <laughs> you can meet people that are kind of like climbers, like social climbers. You know what I'm talking about? They are willing to do whatever it takes to be more popular and more famous and more powerful, maybe richer, maybe more well-liked, 
maybe higher up in their company's hierarchy. You can kind of feel it on people like that. You know what I'm saying? The truth is we're all, to a certain degree, like that. We desire to climb. I think one of the best kind of natural illustrations of this is the world of academia. Anybody here ever do any academics? Give you guys? Cool. When you're in a room with a bunch of people at the highest level of academia, you can feel the arrogance in the air. <laughs> you can feel it. And also, if you're there, you're probably contributing to it, right? You can be in a room with a bunch of other guys trying to get an advanced degree, and they're like, I will outright and outpublish everyone. Like, everyone's looking at each other, and you meet someone, you're like, are you worse or better than me? So I know how to treat you. It's not a good vibe all the time, right? You can feel it. Ooh, you can feel it. It's so ironic to me because um, the, the most successful academic is not really read by that many people. Something like 97% of like, academic articles go basically unread. Like Zach read my thesis, and he doubled the readership. <laughs> Thank you, Zach. Thank you. It's like a, a world in which people are really, really invested in being the best, but the effect is extremely low. And on the outside, you're like, wow, we were so intense about such an insignificant thing. Actually, no matter what area of your life you desire to be a pure climber, to have it over on other people, to be great, it is actually an insignificant thing to the incomparable, unmatched glory of God. Christianity, as I'm sure you've heard many times, is a race to the bottom. Radical servanthood. Radical humility. In all areas, like husbands, radically serve your wives. Humble yourselves. Wives, radically serve your husbands. Humble yourselves. Parents, radically serve your kids. And you're like, we are. <laughs> we kind of have to. But not just with like physical things. Give your lives over to them in powerful and humble ways. There are certainly um, people here, friendships or they are... Uh, relationships between husbands and wives or whatever in which you are in the middle of intense conflict because neither of you wants to humble yourself. So this is for you. That's you. Break the pattern. Follow your example, Christ. Humble yourself. I don't think that being a radical servant means unqualified approval. It doesn't mean just saying yes to everyone and everything. I think part of radical service for each other is us seeking to protect the holiness of other people. We still have to wash each other's feet. God desires and has always desired for his people to be holy, to reflect him well, to live in righteousness. And part of the command that he gives to the church, us together, is to carefully and gently and lovingly lead each other out of sin when one falls into it, back into righteousness, back into holy living. Look at um, Galatians 6.1. Paul says this. Oh, by the way, he says this in his grumpiest letter of all time. 
He says, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of what? Gentleness. It'll wash feet carefully. Look at what um, Ironside, a commentator, says. He says, if you are going to wash your neighbor's feet, you ought to be careful about the temperature of the water. (laughs) You would not go to anyone and say, put your feet into this bucket of scalding water and I will wash them for you. Ice water is just as bad. Some people go at you in such a way that you just shrink back from them. Some are so hot and some are so cold and icy and formal. You don't appreciate either, do you? I do think that living the Christian life together in this community as a church is going to require us to be willing to say hard words. But those hard words need to be said in a spirit of gentleness. The goal is not just to call someone out. In fact, if all I'm ever doing is walking around pointing out other people's sin, really, I'm just a moral climber. Our goal is to shepherd them lovingly back to a place of obedience. Lastly, Jesus tells us something really important here. Right at the end, verse 17, he says, If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. You guys want to be blessed? Just dug again. Do you want to be blessed? Do you want to be, like the word means happy. It's this Greek word, makarios. It just means happy. You want to be happy? The world gives us all kinds of ways to be happy, right? Workout routines and fun places to go and eat and relationships and a meaningful vocation and getting married when we get married and having kids when we want to have kids. But Jesus doesn't say that. He says, the way that you're happy, the way that you're blessed is by following my example. I think when God says that he will bless us, sometimes that means that he will give us the desires of your heart. Have you ever had God given you a thing that you desire? The truth is, anytime you've ever received anything you desire, it's because God gave it to you. So hands should just go up in general, right? I do think that's part of it. I also think that as we come to resemble Jesus more, we come to love the things that he loves more. I think that the Lord shapes our desires. The whole world around us is trying to shape our desires. Did you know this? Like, I don't know, the the regular American person in a single day will encounter like 1,100 ads. They're trying to shape our desires. But when we follow the example of Jesus, he shapes our desires. Do you know why that's so important? Because whatever God desires, he gets. And if our desires are his desires, we get those things also. May we be a church that resembles Jesus. Right, Hope Chapel? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the fact that we can gather together on a Sunday morning and Consider your word and sing praises to your name. Pray that you would bless us. We thank you for the power of your word. We thank you that you've sovereignly preserved it over these many thousands of years. Pray that we would believe in it and trust it even more now. Look for all these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. On behalf of the Hope Chapel family, I'd like to thank you for tuning in to the sermon podcast. 
If you would like to know more about our church, you can visit www.hopechapel.org.